For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I will restore your fortunes. Sounds great. Like, I hope that that's talking about me. Talking about Nick Voyager's. Um, or this one. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. <laughs> Sounds horrible. I hope that's not talking about me. <laughs> so these are both verses in the Bible which which applies to us. Do both of them apply to us? Do neither of them apply to us? How do we choose which one to use for which occasion? I don't usually hear people encouraging each other with that Matthew 10 about everybody hating us. I've heard someone encourage with that verse. <laughs> <laughs> it's taking that I'll put you in front of kings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll be dragged before governors and kings. Cool. <laughs> Um, I'm super thankful for Matt Sweeney coming the last four weeks um, to talk about interpreting the Bible. Y'all, he literally drove each time like an hour and a half, maybe plus, from Long Beach. Um, so he's super kind for coming out. Um, and before we move into the next series, which we'll start next week, um, I want to just wrap up some of the things that Matt was talking about and kind of put hopefully some concrete handlebars on some of the um, practices that we were using. He did a good job kind of workshopping us through some different verses. Um, but to, so to begin this kind of wrap up of that, first I just want to say and hopefully encourage you all with this. Um, if you ever feel like overwhelmed, like picking up this book and um, just at the size of it or the, the content of it, you feel overwhelmed. I just want to encourage you all that God is incredibly gracious and he knows our mental and um, spiritual limitations. He created us and God wants us to know him. The Bible isn't meant to confuse us. In fact, just the fact that he gives us the Bible says, oh, he, he actually wants to make himself known to us. Um, it's kind of his own self-disclosure to us, you could say. Like, he's making himself accessible by giving us the Bible in the first place. Um, and he, uh, you could say, he accommodates himself to us. He's so other, he's so holy, he's so just something we can hardly fathom, and then he makes himself known through like language that we can know and hear from him, and he, in fact, the you know the Bible was written originally in uh, the different pieces in Greek and Hebrew, and so even that, like I don't think God necessarily speaks Greek or Hebrew, but he like was kind enough to to reveal himself to the people of the day, and using that um, using that language, Jesus uses farming analogies and fishing analogies because that's helpful to the people and their understanding. Like he wants them to know what he's like, what life in his kingdom is like. He uses literary devices like um, Psalm 17 says, the psalmist says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Well, does God really have wings? Not necessarily, but he wants us to know kind of what his comfort for us and protection for us is like, so he speaks to us in that way. Basically, 
he's very gracious in making himself understandable to us. And so we shouldn't get this and think, oh my gosh, this is just too confusing. No, he actually wants us to know what he's saying. Um, and so just an encouragement, you don't have to be a really smart scholar or genius or philosopher to understand uh, the Bible. In fact, like much of the New Testament, it's written to like just church people, right? It's not written to seminary students. Um, I love Psalm 19.7 says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Like, I'm simple, and so it's nice that his word, I don't have to be wise to understand it, but he, he uses it to make wise what is simple. Same thing in Psalm 119. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, hey, remember your calling? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, he says. You guys aren't smart people. Um, it's, a, it's a simple message, the message of the cross. Um, God's word speaks to the simple. I'm super thankful for that. And that helps kind of ease I'm not as overwhelmed. I think, well, gosh, I don't know how to study properly. And well, this first I thought it meant this, and now it doesn't mean. Well, like God wants to make Himself known to us. God's not simple Himself, right? Um, he's holy. He's set apart. We maybe know Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts. God says, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And you've seen even the last few weeks, we try to understand these passages, and this is more than a. Uh, Dick and Jane primer, right? It's like, oh, we're actually we're gonna have to work to kind of understand uh, what this is saying. But God wants us to know Him. He wants to communicate with us, and through His Spirit and through His Word, we can know Him certainly, but not exhaustively. Okay. Um, I also one thing I loved that Matt said last week that I think was so good is that the Bible is spiritual but not magic, and. So it's, it's spiritual in that it is God-breathed. It was written as men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, it takes a work of God, really, to give us understanding. It's called illumination of the Spirit. It's not just a record, but it's a revelation. God's revealing himself to us. So it's spiritual, but it's not magic in that it, it, God, we usually don't, aren't to use it in this way where it's like, well, I need some scripture that's going to work for me right now. And so we point to something. Okay, well, I guess it talks about uh, worship him, all you gods, it says. Okay, well, maybe that means something. Like, it's not meant to be a, a magic. I can just randomly find something. Um, I can't magically apply any text to any situation. I can't just go about things without thinking because magic is just going to work. I can just quote the scripture. We have to work at understanding. Maybe that sounds lame to have to work hard. And it's like, can't we just read it for what it is and try to see what sense it makes to me and kind of come up with a understanding of it ourselves? I don't think so. In fact, I'm convinced that we are commanded to work hard at understanding it. Um, 2 Timothy 2.15 says... We are to rightly handle the word of truth. If we're to rightly handle it, then what does that also mean? There's yeah, there's a wrong way to handle it. 
And not only that, like we don't just are commanded, hey, we need to know this, but hopefully we want to know it. You guys have probably heard the like kind of the analogy of you get a love letter um, from somebody that you, you haven't been able to be with for a long time, you're not going to see for a long time. It's like you want to, you don't just read it quickly and toss it away, but you read it over and over again. You look at it and you, you talk to your friends and you think, I wonder what they meant when they said this. And then you put it in a little box and you save it and then you come back to it later and all this stuff because you care what the person is saying to you. You want to understand it. And hopefully our relationship with God is so much more important and life-giving and all-encompassing than a romantic fling. Um, and hopefully we desire it like honey and gold, like um, we'll talk about in about a month as we look through Psalm 118. Listen to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but here's who's blessed, who's he whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night because he has to No. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Like I, I want this because it's sustaining my life. It's nourishing me. It's giving me what I need to live an abundant life. So if there's anything that's worth your time and is not a, a, a bummer to study, but it's worth your effort, um, it's, it's the Bible. So like more than the podcasts that you love and the blogs that you love and the books that you love to read or listen to, um, the Bible um, is worth your time. This Bible brings life. Those other things don't necessarily bring life. So how do we approach this? I just kind of, again, want to give some, some simple handlebars. Um, a friend of mine, some of you all know her, posted something on, on Facebook a few weeks ago. I asked her permission to share this. Um, and this is, she has started to read some verses in the Bible recently, and she, this is how she, she understands the Bible. This is what she said. She said, it is about how you look at each line, how each line applies to you. The Bible is simply a mirror, a direct reflection of your morals, what you believe to be true, perhaps prompting you to question that as well. The Bible is a book that can inspire both acts of charity and acts of insanity, but so can The Catcher in the Rye or a Nirvana song. Um, I understand what she's saying. Um, and my friend's outlook on the Bible could be called um, hermeneutical non-realism. So we've, we've looked, uh, Matt's explained hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is this, just the study or the interpretation of scripture um, by hermeneutical non-realism. That's just saying I, meaning is only here when I put it there. And not just with the Bible, but whatever it is, whatever it is. I, meaning comes when I put meaning into something. Um, versus hermeneutical realism, which says I'm not creating meaning but I'm discovering meaning that's already there. Before I even ever open the Bible, it actually means something, regardless of if I can comprehend it or if I look into it, it actually means something. And it's becoming more and more common to use a hermeneutical non-realism, like my friend, that kind of approach to say that the author doesn't determine the meaning. I determine the meaning as I'm, as I'm reading whatever they've written, or at least I don't care what the author meant 
here's what I want their work to mean. And so um, that's what it means to me. The problem um, with this type of interpretation of scripture is that the Bible is actually historical documents compiled together, written by real authors that meant something when they wrote what they wrote. So there's letters in the Bible, there's um, books of poetry or songs, right? There's philosophical kind of writings, there's historical records, there's agreements and contracts and even parables, and there's rules, like general literature rules that govern the way that we read those literary genres. And so I think, shouldn't we use those those rules, those uh, rules of grammar when we read the Bible, just like we would for any other ancient historical writing or any writing for that matter. The Bible isn't just like, the genre of the Bible isn't, the, it's the biblical genre. Now, the, the genre is poetry and narrative and history and these different things, just like Christian music when somebody says that. Well, that's, that kind of describes what it's about, but that doesn't say anything about the genre. And, oh, well, there's different kinds of Christian music and it's, I think, a similar thing in the Bible. There's, yeah. Bible that, that says something, that says something about the content, it's biblical literature, but it goes much beyond that. And just because the Bible has spiritual significance, that doesn't mean that we can rule out the rules of language and communication. Um, just because it speaks of miracles doesn't mean that the authors didn't intend or mean something specific when they wrote. Um, it doesn't mean that we can make up spiritual meaning that the author didn't intend. Again, we wouldn't do that for any other type of document. Um, for example, if someone writes in scripture, Jesus wore sandals, probably doesn't make sense to include, therefore, everyone should wear sandals. Or um, the leather represents the roughness of life wrapped around our foot, which represents our soul. Or, you know, we don't, that's not what what was intended. No, it's just Jesus wore sandals because so did everybody else in the first century, right? Engineering statement. I think they did. I don't know that for sure. Um, if Shalaria wrote a letter that said, Dear Bob, and then it went on and continued, and then 500 years later, somebody finds the letter, and they're like, oh, it says, Dear Bob, Shalaria was in love with Bob because she's calling him dear, and that's a term of endearment. Well, we would say, well, they didn't accurate, like they didn't do the work to understand that in 2017, when you say dear somebody, or maybe 2000, maybe that's old, but, but that's actually just a common greeting, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you love somebody. You're just saying, oh, this is, um, this is how I greet you. And so if you over-spiritualize the Bible, or if you're not careful with it, you can literally make it say anything you want, right? Mm -hmm. I could probably come up with crazy examples. You can, I could say, well, you could beat your wife. Because Paul says um, he beats his body into submission, he says. And then up, you're, the husband and wife are one flesh. So if I can beat myself and we're one flesh, I can beat my wife. You know, you could, like, you could kind of twist it to say whatever you want. And that's why people do crazy things claiming inspiration from the Bible because they use it however they want. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that if the Bible can mean anything you want, then it doesn't mean anything. There's no meaning if it means everything. Okay. Um, this is a little philosophical, and then we'll get to something more uh, concrete, like I said at the beginning. Um, so we study it carefully. I think it just makes sense to understand what the authors intended, similar to how we would any other 
ancient document, and from that we ascertain what the author meant. That's the meaning of what was written. And we may or may not agree with the meaning of what was written, but there still is that meaning. That's what the author put there, and there's one meaning in that. So when a person says, hey, this verse, to me, it means this, it's like, well, that sounds really intriguing, and that sounds kind of postmodern, but what other documents do we do that with? Like, we don't read history books that way. Well, to me, it kind of, to me, it kind of means this, or old letters that way. We don't, that's not the way that we read. Even poetry, right, or, or fiction. Like, I've sat through English lit classes, and it's like we spend hours and hours and hours tearing a poem apart to, to find out what the writer of the poem meant. And we talk about the, the meter and the strophe and the iambic pentameter and blah, 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 because we know, well, this is, this is how you... This is how the people of this time wrote this literature, and we, we can understand what Shakespeare was trying to do with this play, or whatever it is. Um, because we believe, hey, he had a purpose in writing this. He is the author, and so um, it, the author, or the creator of something is the one who has the right to say this is what it means. Um, so you could say it like this. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but the author has the authority, right, to to say what the meaning is in something. Um, that's just the very essence of a creator. So, and I would say a denial of the author is really just a way to buck the authority that the author is trying to put forth. Um, so, like, I don't want somebody telling me what to do in this, in the case of the Bible, I don't want God or some biblical writer to, to tell me what to do. And so, in order to do what I want to do, I create my own meaning. I create my own grammatical rules, or I just kind of make things up and I tie it in and say, well, that's what it means to me. Um, to be fair, every once in a while, that might kind of work for you. You can use a, a bedspread as a tablecloth if you want to, and it might kind of work for you, but then when you try to wash it off or you really use it for it, it's just not going to work how it's actually supposed to. You might kind of get by for a little while. Um, and also, to be fair, this isn't just non-Christians that try to buck the authority of Scripture. Like, we do this all the time. Um, and sometimes unknowingly, and maybe sometimes intentionally, I, I think, um, like Matt was explaining last week, I, I, this was so important. We have to like understand the, the meaning of Scripture and not just read our experience into it. Say, well, I've experienced something that kind of sounds like that, so it necessarily means that. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Um, just to kind of put it in a simplified uh, Bible school package, it's kind of the difference between these terms eisegesis and exegesis is the difference between reading into the text and reading out of the text. Like, what does it say? And I want to pull that meaning out, uh, which is what we're going to try to do. Um, so when we come to reading scripture, I just want to give some, this is going to be like the skeleton of a hermeneutics class that, um, 
would take a semester or two or three to um, actually kind of go through all the details of, or maybe even more than that. Um, and this will be reviewed to some of you all, some of it. Even if it's review, I think there's some things that I'm going to say that you've never heard before. Watch out for them. Um, maybe you've heard this before, reap, as a, um, as a way just to study scripture. Yeah? What's the R? Read, which, by the way, um, I would say we're pretty, pretty biblically illiterate as a society, just in with the mere fact that we just don't read very much scripture. So that's a great place to start when just studying and wanting to interpret the meaning and application of scripture. What's uh, the E? Anybody know? There's different ways that people have used this acronym, but read, examine, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time tonight, pretty much. Apply. What's P? All right. Yeah. So it should probably be preep, right? Like we should probably pray uh, all throughout. Preep. <laughs> um, but what do we normally do? We normally rap, right? Uh, it should be. Per, 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 Lots of P. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we normally rap, right? We leave out the exam and we're just like, okay, I read this and now I apply it. Or probably we raw a lot of times. Just RA, um, which is even worse. Uh, we're sure to get a great application if we just read and directly apply. Um, so we're going to spend our time, like I say, here in examine. That's kind of what the hermeneutics side of things is. And so I want to give you um, just some ways to think about that. The bottom line, hands down, most critical component to consider when examining scripture is it's a C word. What do you all think? Context. Oh, okay, there we go. Everything that I'm going to share tonight kind of could fit into this um, idea of context, okay? Um, so we believe that every verse in the Bible is true, but that doesn't mean that every verse can truly be used for every situation, okay? Um, Luke 11, 9, ask and it will be given to you, okay? I want $100 billion and a smoking hot body, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I don't have a hundred billion dollars. <laughs> um, no, that like if that's if that's what we if that's what we find that verse to mean, then we're calling Jesus a, a we're making Jesus a, a liar actually because it's not actually going to come true or a genie if it does come true. Um, so if you if you look at the context of the Luke passage anyway that actually his disciples have asked Jesus, how are we supposed to pray? And he says, well, you should pray for forgiveness of sins. You should pray for the kingdom of God. You should pray for um, your basic sustenance, your, your daily bread, and these sorts of things. If you pray for those, ask and it will be given to you. I promise if those are the types of things that you're asking for, it will be given to you. It's not meant to be some blanket statement that we can just use for any context or any genie wish that we have. Um, let me ask you guys this. In literature, what is the smallest unit of meaning? 
think about literature, like some written form, what's the smallest unit of meaning? Is it like a letter? Like, does the letter B mean anything? No. A. a word? Okay, maybe it's a word. Words mean So, words, I would say, are not the smallest unit of meaning mm. sentences are. Um, I had a, my hermeneutics professor would say words do not have meaning. They have meanings. Mm -hmm. But they do have meaning in a sentence. Yeah. You can know the meaning of a word when you put it in a sentence. Otherwise, there's words that can kind of have different variations or different mean different things. Even if it's spelled exactly the same, mm -hmm. um, it's hard to think of examples, but um, you know what I'm talking about. So maybe it's Fair. sentences. Fair? Uh oh, this is one of those country southern things that deal, deal no that's not fair or let's go to the fair is it spelled more in person yeah fair. spelled differently yeah, yeah like in person context fair. Of fair yeah, like outside of the context of the sentence that word has a meaning F -A -I -R. Mm -hmm. yeah. that swain's example was rain I think rain yeah make it rain yeah yeah or, yeah. or rain yeah exactly so so yeah words have it has meaning, you could say, but they actually have meanings. And to actually understand the meaning of the word, you have to know the context of the sentence. Um, so we most accurately know what a word means if we understand its sentence. And the sentence, we best understand it in, in light of the kind of paragraph that it's in, which is best understood in light of kind of the body of writing that it's in, which, if we're studying the Bible, is best understood not just in the particular book, but in the whole story of God. And so Matt kind of kept coming back to that zoomed out perspective. So contexts that we must consider in making contexts that we must consider making interpretation. I'm going to start with the first context, the most immediate context of a sentence where we can find meaning. It's not all going to be this technical. Don't be worried, y'all. Um, we'll say just a paragraph. It doesn't obviously, or maybe not obviously, but the Bible, the people who have interpreted our Bibles have broken out paragraphs kind of based on what they think is correct. But um, you understand kind of the, the general area around the sentence. What we get in trouble with is we pull one sentence out mm -hmm. and we say, oh, ask and it will be given to you. So uh, the problem is we need to look at the kind of paragraph or the surrounding few sentences for the context so that we can understand that. One of the examples we used of this just a couple weeks ago was the Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So how do people misapply that? They say, well, I can do anything I set my mind to as long as I have Jesus with me. Well, that's not necessarily the case. If you look at the context, you guys remember it all, or do you know, like, the context? What is it? Suffering. Yeah, the context is talking about being content and specifically being content with nothing or, or, or what seems like not enough. And so I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Go ahead. Isn't Paul in prison? Yeah, yeah, he's saying this in prison. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's like, I can do all things kind of means in this context, the, the paragraph gives us a better context. Well, it doesn't mean I can just go lift a thousand pounds. It means, oh, I can persevere through all things. Like, God will give me the strength to get through whatever it is. He'll give me the contentment to get through whatever it is that's coming to my life. Um, Matthew eighteen twenty. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I've heard this to talk about how, well, <clears throat> Jesus is only present when there's two people, at least two Christians around. Or two Christians 
are sufficient for having a church service because Jesus is there with us. As long as you know two or three are gathered, that's, that can be a church. Or Jesus magically all of a sudden answers prayers when two or three people agree on the same prayer. Well, if you look at the, the context, um, like there might be something to that, but to get a better meaning, you look at the context, and the context of Matthew 18 is about correcting people in their sin and you kind of, you learn through that, if somebody is in unrepentant sin, you don't want just one person trying to determine that in your life. You want at least two or three other people who can peer into that. And, and in those two or three other people, there's confidence in their outcome. They're, they're the witnesses of what's been going on in this person's life. And Jesus is, is with them in whatever decision they come to in that. That's kind of the, the context there. It's not necessarily that there's just some magic that happens all of a sudden when we pray with two or three people. Anyway, just to use a, a little example. Um, and I, I don't, won't put a percentage on it, but I think most of our like taking verses out of context could be that most of that problem would be solved if we just looked at the immediate context. Mm -hmm. Like that rules out so many problems of, of people misusing scripture. Um, but it, we will go um, to the next step. This we'll spend some time here. The, if you zoom out a little bit, you could say chapters. You know, maybe are the next biggest kind of section. Um, but again, the chapters aren't or weren't originally in the the writings. And so, um, let's consider the the book as a whole, or the letter as a whole, or the the book of poetry of Psalms as a whole, or you know, these different um, the the particular collection of writings. So um, I'm going to give you guys, again, this is total skeleton, and we could spend um, months working through all of this stuff, which we're going to spend just tonight. Um, some questions to ask. And some of this, it's like, again, we would do this with anything else that we read. So let's just give scripture a fair chance and do this. Who's the author, and who are the recipients, we might ask. Yeah. Um, A, E, and y'all, some of this stuff is easy, right? So Ephesians starts out, he says, uh, Ephesians starts, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. From Paul to the saints in Ephesus. Okay, that, that's easy. But when, when I say what, who's the author and the recipients, maybe you can go beyond that. Like maybe there's more to know about Paul that's going to be helpful to the letter. So, for example, if you want to know about Paul, read the book of Acts. That's actually going to give you a really uh, great insight into the rest of Paul's life and where he's at with Christ and what that's looked like in his life, right? There's also um, maybe... Don't worry, you don't always have to like end up reading the whole book of Acts to find out about Paul, but there's really helpful aids um, to Bible study that we have in this blessed country and the language that we speak. Um, we have so many resources that if you pick up, um, like I've got a couple here on the table, a Bible encyclopedia or Bible dictionary or commentaries on the book of Ephesians, they're going to give you a paragraph or two, or, or maybe more, depending on how much detail, about Paul and what's significant about Paul's life that Scripture talks about, or maybe even that other sources outside of, outside of Scripture talk about. What's significant that affects kind of the, some of the meaning of this particular book? Um, so that's one thing. Another thing that we need to kind of ask is, um, and Matt talked about this some, what's the historical 
context. By historical context, I mean the time period, the geography, the culture, the customs. There's internal clues in scripture um, as to what's going on, and um, we can seek that out. Again, we've got great resources now. We don't even have to read the Bible very much. We can read all these sources about the Bible that tell us all this information. Kind of kidding. Um, so in Revelation 3 to the church in Laodicea, um, God says, Jesus says, I know your works. You guys are probably familiar with this. I know your works. You are neither hot, sorry, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So we kind of understand a basic meaning of this passage without even thinking about context a whole lot. Well, God, Jesus doesn't want his people to be lukewarm, and so he wishes we'd either be on fire for him or just not care about him at all kind of thing. Um, that's okay. That's like the bedspread as a tablecloth understanding. That's, that's, um, that's just okay. If you spend some time looking uh, through scripture and um, even some other historical documents, looking at Laodicea, you're going to see that this is a city that was close to two cities that provided water. Colossae, which had really cold, good, refreshing water, and um, Hierapolis that had like um, hot springs, therapeutic kind of hot springs. Both of those are really good. Like the one's good for drinking and uh, I don't know, you know, cold water, it's good, right? Hot water, it's really good for the body and for healing and all these different things. By the time you pipe that water into Laodicea, which didn't have a water source like that, it was lukewarm and basically was kind of good for nothing. It's like every, nobody liked the tepid kind of 72 degree water or whatever in Laodicea because it just wasn't, and you didn't have the microwave or whatever just to heat it up. Or, um, so, like, considering that gives us a little clearer understanding of what the verse is saying. It's not that Jesus is saying, I wish you would either believe harder or that you just wouldn't believe at all. He's kind of saying, and it goes on to say, if you look at the immediate context there, that they're operating in a way that is, that, that where they, they're use, they need to realize that they're useless without Christ. They think they're doing fine. They think they're hot or cold or really valuable. They think they're rich. They think they are dressed in nice garments. He says, but you're not. You're actually naked. You're pitiable. You're poor. Um, and I, I wish that you were actually one of these useful um, type things. So anyway, you get kind of a picture of some of that historical context. Again, you can get help in this stuff. I hope um, in the next uh, few weeks before we start our um, Bible project in the fall to have kind of a, a list of resources and even some here at the house and some online that we can just kind of share if you're like looking for some simple, not like overly scholarly, difficult to understand things, but just simple understandings. Even in your Bible, or a lot of Bibles, I know most ESVs have it, there's a section that's in the end of mine that give a little one paragraph or a few sentence summary of each book, the purpose of each book of the Bible. Super helpful. Um, which is the next thing. What is the purpose or sometimes there doesn't seem to be one purpose for the whole thing, but what are some themes within? Again, this is all within the book. This is the, the bigger context of the book. Now, 
some of the purposes of the books of the Bible are really obvious. So Luke says, um, at the beginning of his gospel, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who are from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, da 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 It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke reveals in the first few verses of his book, of his gospel, here's what I'm writing for. I'm writing to a guy named Theophilus. I want him to be confident in his understanding of the life and teachings of Jesus. So I'm going to kind of write an orderly account of Um that doesn't always happen at the beginning. And John, the Gospel of John, he has a little different purpose in writing, but he makes it really clear. Near the end of the book, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's purpose is a little bit different. It's not necessarily to give an orderly account of everything that's happened in Christ's life. But it's written, he chooses particular things in Jesus' life for the purpose of the reader believing and finding life in Christ. Um, the Proverbs start with the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Here's the point. This is the first couple of verses. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, in righteousness, justice, and equity. There it is. That's what the book is about. Um, sometimes you have to infer a little bit more and the writer's not quite so clear on that. So Paul, oftentimes in some of his books, he's addressing certain things. So he'll say, now concerning the matters that you wrote me about. And so he starts to spill out some of those topics or some of those themes. And well, that's his purpose. He's addressing some things that they wrote him about. Um, Peter, when you read First Peter, you kind of realize, oh, he's writing to encourage a church who is suffering or about to suffer persecution. Some letters, like the Timothy, Timothy's are written to instruct kind of a pastor. Anyway, you get the picture. There's a, there's a purpose or a theme to um, each book. Again, it's it's pretty easy to find some sources. You can either study it yourself and read read that particular book, you know, a bunch of times, and you kind of understand what the purpose is. Or if you don't have the time or energy for that, find a resource that's going to tell you, oh, we've already done the work for you. Um, here's here's the major purposes of the book. So, last thing of that I want to look at is genre. Genre. I always said genre, but I heard the other day somebody say genre. So when we hear "Once Upon a Time," we know that. The story that follows is probably a fictional history in Cameron's world. He has trouble with psychosis and knowing reality. Um, or if we read Dear So-and-So, like I said earlier, we know, oh, this is probably, this is a letter um, or correspondence of some sort. So I'm going to list out several different genres in the Bible, and I'm going to give a helpful morsel of um, interpretive help for that particular genre. I took, again, and Bible students or seminary students take like weeks and weeks and weeks studying the different genres found in the Bible. We're going to take 
eight minutes to look at probably eight different um, genres. And I'm just telling you guys this, not that I, I want you necessarily to remember all of this and, um, and just be overwhelmed that you don't know this information. Some of this, I had to go back to my hermeneutics notes and like pick this up myself because I didn't remember it. But um, just to kind of get us thinking through the issue of genre. So one genre is historical narrative. This is like 40% of the Old Testament, and this is the Gospels and Acts in the New Testament. Historical narrative. It kind of describes what it is just in, in those words. You could say that it's a representation or a representation of past events for the purpose of instruction. A representation of past events for the purpose of instruction. Narratives, just like a history book or a biography or what have you, usually have a structure. They, they tell a real story. There's setting, there's characters, there's, there's plot. Sometimes there's a, a wrap-up at the end. Um, th it's the most straightforward of the genres, historical narrative. Um, but they are written with the purpose in the Bible of instructing someone. This is important. Um, narratives have purpose. So like the, the person who is writing a narrative, like we were saying with John or Luke, they're selecting certain things for the purpose of providing instruction. Uh, the narratives in the Old Testament, they don't write literally everything that happened every day in every Israelite's life. They pick certain things that highlight what they want to teach or pass on to their children. So there's instruction even in historical narrative. Here's the um, interpretive morsel I want to give to you. Look for thematic, repeated phrases throughout historical narrative. Thematic, repeated words or phrases. If you look at the Gospel of John, you're going to see the word believe over and over again. Well, it's no surprise because the purpose of his book is written so that you might believe. Um, if you look at the book of Judges, throughout the book, several different times, you're going to see this, this statement, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You read that throughout the entire book. Well, that gives us a hint about what the purpose, what the instruction of that book is. Israel was without a king, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so we kind of see how things go down in that situation. Look for thematic repeated phrases throughout. Another genre is law. Law kind of overlaps a little bit. Law is, is the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament. It describes, and again, this is review, some of you, it describes the Old Covenant relationship between God and Israel which matters because depending on what covenant you're a part of, the rules are a little different. So under the old covenant, the Israelites, which we read, are not allowed to eat bacon and are not allowed to, uh, or pork, are not allowed to wear blended material, cotton and, what's another material? Latex. Latex. <laughs> um, you had to have like a, a a rail around the roof of your house so people wouldn't fall off and, and kill themselves. Like all of these law, these are all part of the law. Um, you can find it in the first five books of the Old Testament. Even though the law isn't the, the covenant now that we're under, 
would you say that it's profitable for reading and teaching and understanding? Yes. All scripture is, it seems, from 2 Timothy. So even though we're not bound to the ceremonial, civil portions of the law, we can still, through it, understand something about God and about his holiness and about what it takes to approach God and even something about God's ethics, right, we see in his law. So here's the interpretive morsel if you're looking at a, a law genre in the Bible. Marvel at the holiness of God and what it takes to be in relationship with him. Okay? Um, and that's just, there's a lot more again that could be said about all of these, but these are just something that I find particularly important, hopefully helpful. Prophecy. One-fifth of the Bible, approximately, is prophecy, or the prophecy genre, okay? Um, namely, the major and minor prophets, all of the books that we skip. Um, a prophet and prophetic writing, a, a prophet was primarily, this is super important, it's primarily a fourth teller, not a foreteller, primarily. So they're telling forth the truth of God, not always just predicting the future. That's what we think of when we hear prophets and, oh, these are, this is prophetic literature, so it's always predicting the future. The reality is that's a very small portion of what prophecy is. The prophets are saying, here are God's standards, namely the law of God, the Pentateuch, and here's what you're doing instead. You need to repent and turn back to what God has already told you. That's the main thing that the prophets do. They do predict the future a little bit, but that's kind of giving validity to what they're saying about you need to return back to the law. So if you want to understand the prophets, like understand Deuteronomy 29 through 30, because that's what the prophets continually point back to and say, you're going to be blessed if you follow God, you're going to be cursed if you disobey him. And they keep kind of pointing back to that idea, um, but it's not just so much about, oh, the prophets are always predicting the future. Um, also, most of the prophecies, most of the prophetic genre that we read here has already been fulfilled. Most of it's not about something that's still yet to come, which is kind of cool that we're on this side of it. We get to see all these prophecies of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the time of the church, the destruction of, of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, um, the coming of the Holy Spirit, all these different things. Wow, we're on the other side, so we get this cool confidence that we've seen all of these um, actually happen. So the interpretive morsel for this, I'm just going to read from uh, my uh, professor. His name's Todd Miles, by the way. Probably a fourth of this is plagiarized from him. This sermon. Um, but I don't think he cares. I'll ask him. I won't sell that to um, here's what he says with prophecy what not to do Okay, that's instead of what to do with it what, what not to do first do not let the contemporary situation control the text don't say I have an axe to grind with society so I'm going to apply the prophets to my 21st century situation we must understand the prophets word back through the mosaic covenant like I was saying with Deuteronomy don't use the prophets as a platform against your social issue he also says, do not choose one or two statements out of a larger context and construct a message using these as a motto. So you find the one verse that you really like, and then you make that what that prophet is all about and what that prophet's saying, when really that's just kind of a piece of what they're saying. So don't blow it out of proportion. And then lastly, don't ignore the role of Israel, like specifically Israel, in redemptive history. 
claiming promises that God made to Israel are applicable to other nations. We love to do that. I see bumper stickers of people doing that with America. Like they're, they're, they're taking promises of God to Israel and they're saying, oh, that's why America needs to be blessed. The, those promises are to Israel, they're not to America. Um, so those are just some tidbits for uh, prophetic literature. Um, poetry. Psalms, Song of Solomon. There's also poetry within a lot of the other genres, right? There's little sections of poetry. Um, you guys, I, I don't have to explain what like poetry or songs are. They're artistic. They're meant to kind of have, give an angle that, that, that causes emotion, maybe in a way that just a regular telling of something wouldn't cause. This is obvious, but just to state the obvious, we have to expect in poetry genre to see more literary devices like figurative language, hyperbole, exaggeration, figures of speech, those sorts of things. That's, that's, those are kind of artistic calls and expressions that people make. So that's what we expect when we come to the Psalms and we don't necessarily take every last word like it has some literal interpretation. Now the Psalmist is being artistic in the way that they're using the words. So um, here's the interpretive morsel. These, um, some of the Psalms give blatant clues as to what they're about. The little headings that say kind of verse zero in your Bible on some of the Psalms are actually part of the scripture. They're not um, added in later, but no, this was a to the choir master, or this was a Psalm of David or of Asaph or whatever. Those, those are part of scripture. You, oftentimes you don't read, turn your Bible to Psalm 121 verse zero, but that's, um, those are just as legitimate as the rest of the text and actually really helpful in interpreting what it means. Not all of the Psalms have that, but uh, many of them do. And there's, there's other little clues within. There's the Selah, which is that little word that you see over sometimes on the right-hand side, um, which kind of breaks the, the poem or the song into different sections and, um, and kind of maybe gives a pause or a rest, a musical rest, so you can think on what's just been said. Um, but this, uh, maybe the most important thing, I hope this is helpful, y'all. It is. Yeah. Very helpful. Yeah, pretty good. I, I hope I wasn't just getting like unfounded positive reinforcement. Um, in Hebrew poetry, um, it is mainly structured poetically on, on parallelism, which is parallel thoughts it's not structured like what we think of as poetry often with rhyme and meter, per se. So we think of da 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 or whatever, right? We have a rhyme, we have a meter, and that's obviously that's simplifying our poetry. But um, in Hebrew poetry, that's not nearly as important. There's a little bit of that in there. There's some assonance and alliteration, and there's maybe some rhyming and some words that look kind of the same. But more than that, they're comparing and putting in parallel different concepts. This is like this and it's contrasted with this. And they'll line that up in certain ways. This is like this, this is like this, this is like this, and the thing right in the middle that's a chiastic parallelism is like the most important thing that I want you to get. And there's, it's parallel thoughts, which is really great for us because we can understand the thoughts, reading in English what was originally written in Hebrew, a lot better than we can get the rhymes and stuff that we're, we're never gonna grab through our language and we don't even know how to pronounce biblical Hebrew exactly. And so it's kind of kind of God to give us a form of poetry that we can actually 
understand the concepts, and um, we don't have to necessarily look for what rhymes and not try to translate that into a way that is super awkward and makes sense in English. Um, so parallelism. And because there's a lot of parallelism, this is the last thing I'll say about this, you don't want to get too particular in poetry in defining individual terms because it's, it's purposely making synonyms. It's saying this in contrast with this, this in contrast with this. Well, these two things mean basically the same thing, and these two things basically mean the same thing. So you don't want to get too tied up with specific meanings of terms in poetry. Something kind of bigger is going on with parallelism. Okay, poetry. Um, parables. Now, there's not a book of the Bible that's one giant parable, but um, there's plenty of parables that Jesus uses in the Gospels, and it's a particular type of literary genre. Parable literally means to throw alongside of. So you have this literal, this actual thing that's happening, and Jesus said it's kind of like this, and he lines up another story to kind of put alongside of it. Um, this, um, this was super helpful to me in the parables. I don't know why I learned this. Kind of a morsel for, for us. Parables usually teach one main point. And it's a little hint. Usually it's found at the end of the parable, um, which maybe is, should be obvious. But So when Jesus gives the parable of the prodigal son, the point of it is not that we shouldn't take our inheritance early or that we shouldn't squander our money or whatever. Like maybe the, those may be the case. I don't think we should squander our money. But that's not the purpose of that parable. What would you all say is the purpose of that Parable. You have thoughts the prodigal son. Inspired the parable of the lost sheep as well. Okay. Right? Uh, yeah, that's right next to it. So the lost. You. Okay. Picture of yeah, how God feels about those who would turn to Him. Okay. Yes. Um, Older son, younger son, depending on which. Sibling rivalry, that sort of stuff. Well, no. <laughs> so, so Jesus, if you look at the, 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 con, the paragraph kind of context of that, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees or some religious leaders. And at the end of it, they actually know that he's kind of talking about them. So kind of the point of the parable is really about the older son. That's where Jesus is going with it. To You know how the older son's jealous of what the mm-hmm. younger son got in return? And he's really put out, and the father's like, hey, you have everything, everything that I own has been yours, and why are you? And that's kind of where, where Jesus, that's where he's positioning the parallel in the context. But um, th- there's usually a, a main point. What we're not supposed to do is draw parallels to the real thing in every little detail of the story. We're not meant to ask, what does the... Um, pig pods that the prodigal son was eating, what does that represent in our society? That's, that's not what it's about. Or, or something specific. It says, uh, when the prodigal son came to himself, this is Luke 15, 17, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? So he's like, man, even my father's servants are, have more than I have now that I've gone astray. Well, we know in the parable, the father definitely seems to be representing the father God. The younger son represents maybe 
um, maybe Gentiles, the older son represents those Jews who have been a part of God's family for a long time now, and they're upset about it. The hired servants, who are they? They're just hired servants. Yeah, we're not really meant to know who they are. They're just part of the story. They're telling, telling the story. It's not necessarily that you take every little piece out of a parable and you say, well, this means this, and this means this, and this means this. There's kind of main points. There's something God's doing and Jesus is doing with the overall story. Does that kind of make sense? Sometimes there's multiple points. The parable of the, um, the sower and the seeds, right? He says, this kind of soil represents this, this kind of soil represents this. But he kind of lines it out really clearly in that situation. So look for main ideas. Don't get lost in the little details of the parables. Um, a couple more. Wisdom literature. These are some of my favorites. So Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. These are kind of called wisdom literatures. And they're more philosophical writings that are addressing the general way that God has set up this life. A couple of interpretive morsels. Especially with, with Job and Ecclesiastes. Make sure you read to the end of the book. Don't stop halfway through. If you stop halfway through Ecclesiastes, you're going to think there's no point to anything in this life. And you're going to kill yourself. Or I mean, it's depressing. and that's But that's not... At near Right near the end, you're starting to get kind of really what Solomon's shooting at in there. Or the Kohelet, whoever wrote um, Ecclesiastes. Um, the book of Job, the first 37 chapters of 42 are... Or a lot of it is a bunch of nonsense coming from Job's friends who are giving bad advice and saying things that aren't necessarily true. You don't want to just read those portions and then start to say, well, we need to base our life based on some of these principles, right? But starting chapter 38, which is almost at the end of the book, you start understanding what God is doing in the life of Job and what he's trying to do with this particular book. Um, and when it comes to Proverbs, you guys have probably heard, but Proverbs are not promises. That's just a good thing to remember. It's, this is generally how things go down in God's wisdom and in God's economy, but it doesn't necessarily mean that if A, then, then B. It's not, this is a promise that this is going to happen. It's just a saying that generally this is the course of life. Okay. Um, epistles. Our letters to a person or to a group of people or church. So Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd 3rd John, 1st and 2nd Timothy, all these books, these are epistles. Uh, John wrote them, Peter wrote them, uh, Paul wrote um, so many of them. With the epistles especially, the historical context is, is really important, but the kind of morsel I want to give to you just that's most helpful to me is when you're reading epistles, you have to read carefully the logical relationship between words. Therefore, in the same way that is, either or, if then, however, finally, all these words are important how things relate together. You don't just take the sentence and cut off the therefore and use that for your own purposes. But you need to you know, figure out what's going on there. Um, because the writers of the epistles, they're teaching. They're kind of like sermons, a lot of them, right? And so it's like you want to give some credit to the biblical writers for having a writing strategy. They're like 
they're doing something with what they're writing. And so you need to look at the relationship of sentences and paragraphs and how those kind of relate together, the verbal or the, the uh, words that he uses to connect those things. That's uh, epistles. And lastly, apocalyptic literature. Um, Revelation and some of Daniel, and there's a little kind of bits and pieces elsewhere. Apocalyptic means it's, it's, it's a genre that's, that's written uh, talking about the end of the world, right? Apocalypse. Is that not considered just part of prophecy? So it's, it is a bit different. Um, apocalyptic is, first of all, it's largely talking, it's talking primarily, if not entirely, about the end of the world, where other, the other prophets, again, like I said, are talking mostly about things that have actually already occurred or are going to happen multiple times throughout history and kind of recurring. Um, usually apocalyptic literature is received through a vision, so that's like John receives a vision, Daniel, um, and um, there's probably the most disagreement in Christianity and in the scholarly world about, especially the book of Revelation, right? Um, it's because it's apocalyptic literature, and frankly, that's, that's the hardest to interpret, and we have the hardest time understanding what it's saying. Even the the writers of those things, they're having a, a vision or like a dream, and they even seem kind of like confused as to, I don't really know what I'm looking at, but it kind of looks like this beast with this kind of a head and the body of a whale and whatever it is. And Daniel's like, I see this giant wheel and these things, but they're even kind of, I'm just not exactly sure what is going on here, but I'm just going to describe to you what I see. And so I think it's fair. My kind of position is it's, it makes sense that within Christian orthodoxy, there's different views of what kind of the end, how the end is going to look. And so I would say my little tidbit there is to, in those writings, look for what is theological or what we can learn about God in those things and handle the predictive stuff really humbly. Like you might not understand it perfectly, and that's okay. So, there's so much that can be said about all these genres. This is all just looking in a particular book that we're studying, trying to understand the, the, the section, what the author is doing. And I don't want you guys, the last thing I want you guys to do is walk, and, walk away and be overwhelmed. Um, and I'll go back to what I was saying at the beginning. God wants to be known. His desire is to communicate these things to us. He knows our capacity. He knows whether we're just picking up the Bible for the first time in our life or we've been looking at it for 40 years. And God makes wise the simple. We don't have to come to it with some great scholarly knowledge or a ton of background information or whatever, but he, he wants to reveal himself to us through Scripture. I just want to bring out to show that there are different ways that we read different parts of Scripture with John. Okay? Um, and then the last context, of course, just to end is the Bible, the whole thing, the whole story of God, um, which with that you could ask two things. Uh, like when is what I'm reading, when did it happen in redemptive history? So a few months ago we looked at um, the story of God and we saw there's these big events that happen, there's creation, there's the fall, there's the redemption provided for in Jesus, and then there's a future restoration that's going to happen. And it's important to kind of know which piece, wherever we're reading, where that falls in the big categories. And there's other categories, too, 
Um, like when the does that come before or after the Holy Spirit comes? Is that before or after the exile or the return to the land of Israel or these all these different categories that you can you and I know some of them and some of them we still have yet to learn what are important kind of turning points in Scripture. But those it's important to look at the overall story because if you read Genesis two and you don't realize that that's before the fall of mankind of Adam and Eve then you're going to think, oh, maybe it's okay to run around naked and unashamed, right? Um, or if you don't realize that you're reading in the Old Covenant, um, then you might wonder why we're not still doing animal sacrifice or why we're um, not killing off other nations in God's name or why we're not receiving a promised material blessing in obedience to God like Israel was promised and like Israel was doing. So it's important in the story, in the whole story, and I think Matt did a good job kind of continually bringing that up. When is what I'm reading? When did it happen? And then lastly, you could just say, uh, where, where else? So if, if I'm reading a particular verse and it says, judge not lest ye be judged, and I'm trying to understand what that means, it may make sense to look through the whole Bible, and there's tools that we can use now to say, well, where else does it talk about judging and kind of get an understanding? It's called a systematic theology of judgment. What does that look like to, to help us understand the immediate context of what's going on, and we can drop down and understand uh, what's going on in the Bible. Google has saved the day, and it wasn't what they wanted to do, I'm sure, but they've made it really easy to say, what does the Bible say about, and enter your topic, and then you're going to get some websites that just list 100 verses that talk about that particular thing. All of those other verses you also need to make sure to be reading in context, too, or else you're going to get a funky view. Um, Y'all, so we try... I've tried yearly for us as a church on Wednesdays to have some sort of survey of scripture. So um, whether it was a one-day thing Mike Brown shared a couple years ago or whether it's like the story of God, little four-week series we did, trying to give us an understanding of what, what does the Bible say as a whole um, because that affects all of the smaller parts that we can look into. This year, like I said, in September, we're going to start through the Bible Project, which it's going to take a year or longer maybe, um, but to, again, give us an, an overview of what is God doing, how do all these genres fit into the Bible, and what are all the purposes and themes, and how do they play into the story as a whole. And so I would encourage you guys, um, if you're not already, to make a habit of spending time in reading God's Word every day. If you spend 20 minutes every day from now until we start the series, um, you'll read through the New Testament plus some. Um, and also make a habit of being here on Wednesday night um, because that's going to be part of our study as well. So there's so much to learn, but God wants to help us to learn it. And he gives us his spirit even so that we can understand it and be helped um, to then apply it, right? We didn't even talk about this, but that's ultimately what we want to get to. We want to understand it and examine it correctly so that we can apply it correctly. So if there is one guiding principle I can leave you with tonight, it's just this statement when, when trying to examine the scriptures and understand or interpret what is being said, the meaning. Go with the flow. 
Go with the flow. The Bible is meant to be read in, like, if you're reading an epistle, it's meant to be read, there's a flow to it. There's a direction that the writer is writing. The Bible is a whole story. And again, you have to go, you have to understand where you are in the flow of the story. There's a thought that somebody's developing, even in a small area like a paragraph. Go with the flow. Don't grab something out of the flow and try to just toss it into the stream somewhere, but just go with what's being said and understand how, how, the, how the movement of the story is going. Within that, I would say read big chunks of scripture. Don't just always study and just look for little verses that kind of tell you what you want. Um, but read through a whole, I mean, you can read through Philippians in 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something, right? So it's not, it doesn't have to be overwhelming, but read chunks of scripture so you can understand the, the context and so that you can examine, so you can have a correct understanding. Go with the flow. These are narratives and sermons and discourses and they're meant to be read in a, in a certain direction and there's movement to them. So read, examine, then apply. That's moving it into our world and uh, pray throughout that. So, homework. Um, I'm not going to follow up on this but uh, you can follow up with it with each other. Um, I would suggest a really great passage to try some of this with is Matthew 7, 1, which is a very, very common passage, maybe the most common passage to non-Christians. Um, and that's the judge not, lest ye be judged. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, I would encourage you all to reap or preep that passage. Um, if we had time, we could do it together tonight, but um, read it over and over. Read it in context. Look at the paragraph. Look at the book. Consider the author. All these different things we went through. And then talk with your 203 about it or, um, or other people. And it's an exercise that I think is really going to bring to light the the truth of what's being said there, which hint is oftentimes misinterpreted. But if we're careful, I think we can get a, a really good understanding of that. So, God, thanks for, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for making yourself, for accommodating your otherness to our own understanding. Um, and even for the day and age that we live in where we have Bibles in front of us and multiple translations and we have so many resources that can uh, help bridge the gap between our context and the context from a couple thousand years ago and more. Um, thank you for all of this, God. We're so blessed. We're blessed to be on this side of the cross, not, um, not bound to so many requirements of the law anymore. Um, and we're, we're fortunate that you've uh, made yourself available to the simple-minded and children and any of those who are willing to receive your truth are going to be able to uh, by your spirit. So thank you for that, God. We're so uh, just blessed to know you and I want to know you more. That We all want to know you more, God. So you bless our studies of your word, I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.